Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles. Uh, so last week I began with that little analogy, mental picture of reading Scripture, like going on a journey. And so last week we were, the last few weeks we were in the rapids a little bit, stepping on slippery stones, and uh, I'm happy to get outside of chapter 13 with the prophetic imagery and the difficult passages. And, but now we step into the final chapter of Mark. And I mean chapter as an act of the play. These last three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, are dealing with the final days, the, the final moments. And so if we were to continue in this, this journey, we've made it through the rapids, and now we're on what seems to be even ground, that this all makes sense, and it's, and it's clear in its language. Yet there's this cloud of Christ's death looming over this entire chapter. And so what I want us to do is I want us to keep that in the forefront. When you're in a cloudy day, you can't forget that there's clouds everywhere. But I want us to see the sun that is, that is peeking through. These, these clouds do not last forever. But we must see the cloud and the darkness that is coming so that we can appreciate the light. So this chapter is going to be marked by scheming and plotting and betraying and disappointing and discerning. And the only bright spots are going to be the gift and act of a woman and his institution of the Lord's Supper. And even these are only necessary because of his death. So there's a, there, there's a morbid tone to this chapter, but there's a lot that we can teach us. So a couple things that will be helpful when you're looking at the structure of the Gospels. It is helpful that the last three chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all par- parallel one another. Mark 14 through 16 parallels Luke 22 through 26 and Matthew 26 through 28, meaning the same events in the same order. Now, they're not all completely exact, but as one commentator says, that um, there's remarkable similarity in these chapters, yet pleasing variety. So, you know, as we're looking at these over the next couple chapters, we're going to spend time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically. This morning, we're going to spend time in John because he gives us the most details for uh, the account of Jesus' anointing in Bethany. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and John, but John's going to give us the, very, uh, the most details. So let's jump right in. We're in chapter 14. I'm going to read 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done 
will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. Excuse me, uh, to betray him to them. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, may you bless its reading. May you bless the explanation. May you bless the application. May your spirit use my words in the hearts of your people. May anything that is unclear or selfish be removed. May we be examined by your word. May we grow in our submission to it. May we grow in our love for you from it. May we never lose the weight of your son's death for our sin. May we never lose the weight of the good news of the proclamation of life through his resurrection. May this be a time that is edifying, building up for all of us, and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here we are, two days before the, feast of the, the, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. These are two events, but they are together. The, the Passover is the, the, the meal that kind of kicks off the week, and, and um, this is when the atonement, the, 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 the lamb would be, uh, would be sacrificed. And so this began uh, with the meal on the 14th day of Nisan. This is the month, not the car. This is a, the, the, the month of, uh, in, in the Jewish calendar where the lamb was sacrificed. So that would happen on Thursday. The crucifixion happens on Friday. So two days before, depending on whether you're using uh, Roman timekeeping or Jewish timekeeping, this is Tuesday or Wednesday. So the, the Roman timekeeping is, is more like ours. When we say two days out, we mean tomorrow and then the day after. Jews always include this day. So when they say two's out, two days out, they mean this one and the next one. So it could actually be the next day. They count, they count any part of a day as a day. So either Tuesday or, or Wednesday, nonetheless, does not matter for uh, our purposes. But what does matter is the timing of all this. The feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread is at hand. These are two seminal events in the history of, of, of Israel. The Passover, if you spend any time in Sunday school or any time in this church, we are going to remind ourselves, and God reminds his people again and again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he brought them out by the blood of a lamb that was spread over the doorposts. This shedding of blood was a reminder that, that death was coming, but it is blood that will save you. Blood is a covering for your protection. And it was the blood over their doorposts that saved Israel and that, that brought them out of Egypt when the firstborn sons of, of the Egyptians were slaughtered. And then they went into the wilderness. And God sent them, uh, before we get there, the, the unleavened bread. It was, they were in such a haste that they would not add yeast to their bread so they could take it with them. This was a, a, a quick process. And then they're brought into the wilderness and given bread, manna from heaven. These are all shadows pointing us to the one who would be the final spotless lamb. 
who would be the blood covering for the salvation of his people, who would remind them in our very next text that the unleavened bread that used to make you look back to Egypt now makes you look back to me and remember that I am your, I am your covering. I am your feasting. And when you're in the wilderness and, and after you are delivered, I am bread from heaven. I am true bread. And if you eat of me, you will never hunger again. I am living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. And so it is not by coincidence that all these events are happening and Jesus' death and crucifixion happen at Passover. This is to solidify in the minds of the Jews that what you used to see as your identity, the Passover meal, the, the height of the ritualistic calendar within Israel, now is the supper with the Lord. Now you're no longer looking to the blood of a lamb, but you're looking to the blood of a man. You're no longer looking to unleavened bread, but you're looking to his flesh for your life. And so there, there is a, a fulfillment and a greater, um, greater right and practice that's being instituted here. And so there is an identity shift. And we spent a lot of time on this in, in Hebrews. Within the Jews of seeing their identity in Jerusalem and in the feasts and in the festivals and in sacrifices that cannot save. And in priests who are fallible, who die, who make mistakes. Now they are to see there is one final sacrifice. Your new high priest, his ministry never begins or ends. It is, it is always. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And now, this is your identity. This is what you look to. So don't miss that all this is going on during Passover. This is not a, a, a coincidence. But while this is going on, while everyone else is coming to worship, hopefully there in the shadows, in the dark corners of the temple, are the religious leaders, the authorities of the day, conspiring, the chief priests and the scribes, these Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders of the synagogues, they were seeking. The verb here is is in always seeking. They were doing it and they still are doing it. Meaning, this is always on their minds. Every day they are waking up, how can we kill Jesus? How can we trap him? What can we do? They are, and they're accepting all comers. Anyone with an idea, anyone who's got a plan. And so this is probably well known enough because they're going to get their answer in verse 10 and 11. So collectively, connivingly and covertly because they're cowards. They want to shut him up. So we want this to happen, but not too publicly. Not here in Jerusalem where everyone will see it. They said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. They want to act. What's amazing here, I want you to see this, is that they want to act in secret. But God makes sure this is so public. They wanted to avoid all this happening at the feast. But God brings Judas with an offer that is too good to refuse. In the most public time of the nation of Israel, in the most public place in Jerusalem, they want to keep it secret, but God makes it public. They want to stop an earthly kingdom, but God uses them to establish an eternal kingdom. 
Their desires were murderous, but God's plan is glorious. And so before we go any further, I want you to think about how amazing our God is. Like We would never plan this. We would never do this. He can take the most wicked plans of men and make them an opportunity for his glory. He can take something that is so evil, so vile, so perverse, premeditated murder, and use it as something to save us, to establish his kingdom, to declare his gospel, that their murderous intentions would be the heart of our saving message. And in the midst of the dark and the clouds, the sun shines so much brighter when it comes out. So I'm reading a biography of Adoniram Judson, who uh, was, was the first missionary from America. He left uh, just at the beginning of the 19th century. And so he, a brilliant man, started reading at three and taught himself Greek and Hebrew and, and Latin. And so he wanted to translate the scriptures. The Lord put on his heart a desire to go to uh, the, the, the east and so into India, and he eventually ended up in, in Burma. And so there's a lot of details that go on, but he and his, and his wife went. And imagine learning a new language uh, with no gospel, uh, no even, not even much of a written language. So he actually develops a grammar so he can teach them how to read their own language so that they can read the scriptures. For nine years, him and his wife labor. Buried two children and eventually bear his wife with only a handful of converts. And in the midst of all that, the British invade. And in the British invasion, anyone with white skin was not trusted. So he was thrown in jail. He was starved. He was beaten. He was, he was neglected that he contemplated jumping off a cliff, that he contemplated just dying and giving up. And soon after that, his wife died. And he almost lost his mind. Everything that was important to him was, was taken away. But through this, the Lord sent missionary after missionary, people to encourage him and strengthen him. And through this, there were hundreds of converts. In the first nine years of his ministry, they had less than 10. And the next two, they had hundreds. And the gospel was going out to tribes who were receiving it joyfully. And the darkness that was over him at the death of his wife, who was an amazing support to him, would travel miles every day to feed him and his fellow prisoners while they were in jail, who was herself persecuted and abused. While their daughter was, was dying in her arms, she wanted to make sure that he was still fed. And he loses all that. But then the gospel is furthered in the midst of that. And the Lord brings fruit to the effort. And there are countless stories like this throughout history. Our God is the one who brings beauty out of ashes, life out of death. And the gospel, the good news, shines so much brighter in the midst of dark circumstances and the 
the beauty of life sprouting out of black soil. Something that is a great contrast. And that's what we are seeing here. So in our next section, I want us to read that passage in John so we can get an idea of the significance of what's going on in verses 3 to 9. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn them to Mark, or excuse me, John chapter 12. John devotes a greater portion of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. It begins here in chapter 12. So I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So let's stop here. This is one of those ones that if you are an astute reader or uh, a critical scholar with too much time on your hands, you see a contradiction here. Because what do we just read in Mark? How many days before the Passover? Two. What do we see here? Six. There it is. There's a contradiction in Scripture. Let's just close the Bible and, and, and go home. So there are a couple answers to this, and, and I want you to have good answers when these, these things come up. Here's how this is handled. Here's what we know for sure. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. We know this because in the last few chapters we've seen him. He was staying in Bethany, and he was going in, into Jerusalem every day. So we know that to be a fact. There is one option here. There is one option that um, some time has passed between him being uh, in, in Bethany. There's some time passed between verse 1 and verse 2. So they gave him a dinner. John does not say six days he came into Bethany, and, and then they gave him a dinner on the sixth day. The other option uh, and I think that's certainly plausible. I don't, I don't know which one is, is which, but both make a lot of sense. The other one, um, Mark is ever the storyteller. Mark puts his details in uh, with great care and intentionality. Today, we're going to look at what is often called a Markin sandwich. Um, and we've seen these before. It is a sandwich created by Mark. There's a piece of bread, and there's meat in the middle, and then there's another piece of bread, and your attention is always to go to the meat. And so what Mark is doing is he sets up the beginning of this chapter with a piece of bread. Just, just know, here's where we're starting. They want to kill him. They are plotting right now. I'm going to put something that is completely different and looks like a complete contrast, and it's supposed to, before I give you the other piece of bread, the, the, the complement to the original detail. So, again, we've talked about this. Biblical writers don't have the obsession with chronology that, that we do. Their concern more is to, is to prove a theological point. So could Mark say, I'm going to talk about what they were doing two days before, contrasting it with a similar act that may have happened four days prior to that, and then coming back to present day. Look, so this section could be a, a flashback. Some others say that there were two anointings on two different days, uh, but the details are, are too close. I don't believe that one. Um, but I think either one of those are plausible. So I want to help you there. If, 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 you're, if you're one of those people who say, I see two days and six days, and I don't know what to do with that. But that's not the point. The point is Mark's contrast of the devious nature of the scribes and the chief priests with the devoted nature of this woman. Now let's read. So they gave a dinner for him here. Martha served, these, these details are important. 
Martha served. We'll look at her in a moment. And Lazarus was the one, uh, was one of those reclining at him at the table. Chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. His sisters, Mary and Martha, could not be more different in personality. But Mary, therefore, verse 3, this helps uh, give us the heart and character of the woman referred to in Mark 14. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So remember those details while we're in Mark. And the chances, we'll explain that in a moment, of two women with the exact same alabaster uh, container of, of oil being worth the, the, the same amount and the same response, uh, it's, it is not possible. So let's work through the details of Mark and then I will bring back in John. So while he, Jesus, was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So let's just get this out of the way. He's probably no longer a leper because lepers were not famous for their dinner parties. No one is, no one is accepting an invitation to the leper's house. Presumably, Jesus healed him, but I would hate for the rest of my life to be known as Simon the leper. Like, can I just be Simon? Can I just get bass? Like, he's got like a bad mob nickname, Simon the leper, or like a Guy Ritchie character or something. So this is Simon the, Simon the leper, and uh, they were all re reclining. So typically what would happen is the men would recline together. There would be, there would be servants who would come and serve them. Uh, and the, the, the uh, women would be somewhere else. But a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. And it was very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. The first thing that we need to know is that a woman came to him. So right away, the fact that a woman would come up and touch a teacher of the law, a prominent man, a respected man, was unthinkable. It was scandalous that a man and woman who were not married would touch each other in public of any kind. This right away is going to put everybody back in their seats a little bit. But not just that. She walks up with this alabaster flask and she breaks it. And so I want to get into all those, those details. But uh, John helps us here. This is Mary, sister of Martha. And if you're not familiar with these two, you should be. You need to understand them so we understand what's going on here. So turn to Luke chapter 10. Last week, I had like 35 cross-references on the screen. This week, there are none. We're going to stay in the Gospels. I'm going to keep it simple for you. Uh, so, but this is something I want you to see. So we're in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into the house. Notice the personalities right away. Martha's the doer. She gets to the door, welcome, come into my house. And she had a sister called Mary 
who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. You know who you are at the party, right? You are the one who is, one of, you're either the, the, the one who is, who is running around trying to get everything right, like trying to make sure everything's in order, or you're the one who sits and listens and asks good, and asks good questions. Both are good things, but Jesus points out which one is, is, is better because it's Jesus. But Martha was distracted with so much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? There's a pattern in Mary's life. Everyone else is criticizing Mary. Mary, you should be doing this. Mary, you should be serving. Mary, why are you spending so much money on Jesus? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is something I want you to see. This is something that every one of us needs to hear. All of us Marthas out here, I'm probably one, who thinks that there's always something I need to be doing. I need to work harder. I need to make sure everything is order. I need to, in, in order. But miss the better point of just sitting at Jesus' feet. Missing the good portion of listening to the words of the Savior. Because notice, in, in much running and serving and working, there is anxiety and there is trouble. Anyone feel like that? Yeah. So this is Mary and Martha. John tells us this is Mary who breaks it over. So now we begin to see her heart. Why would she do such a thing? But we don't know what alabaster is. We don't know what, what, what nard is. So let's learn so we can help understand what's going on here. First thing, uh, alabaster in, in, in itself was expensive. You know, think of like crystal or, uh, or some expensive vase. And it was often sealed because what was, it, what was contained in it was so expensive that you didn't want to lose it. You didn't want it to go bad. Sometimes they were sealed so well that you could only break them to use it. And so something like this could have been a family heirloom, could have been something that was a, a very lavish gift that you only save for a very, special, uh, a very special circumstance. We'll get to its value in a moment. So the details here are important. She takes it and she breaks it. Why is that important? Because when you break this alabaster, uh, what do they call it, the flask, um, you can never use it again. You can't reseal it. They don't have duct tape. They don't, they don't, they don't have super glue. Once it's, once it's broken, it all must be used. And what's inside um, is, is uh, something that is, that is valuable. So one of the details here that we, we've brought up before is that Jesus, Jesus never gets leftovers. Jesus uses a new tomb. He uses an unridden foal of a donkey. And he is the only one to use this oil. There, Jesus does not share his, his glory, his attention with anyone else. This is completely devoted to him for his use. And it is filled with nard. Uh, it doesn't sound good. It sounds like something I would have called someone in elementary school. Like, like you, you nard. It, just doesn't, it, it sounds like an insult. Um, but it's very expensive, apparently. It comes from a root of a, of a rare plant in the Himalayas. So you've got to dig up something uh, up in the mountains and, and uh, transport it all the way to, to Israel. And this is, 
Again, very expensive. We'll get there in a moment. Very costly, he says. And she broke it and poured it over his head. John adds feet. Um, also, John adds, it's a pound. So a, a Roman pound was 12 ounces. 12 ounces of perfume is a lot of perfume. So when she pours it on his head, it's enough for his whole body. It makes it down to his feet. This is another contradiction that people will try to bring up. Well, see, one says head, one says feet. The Bible contradicts itself. If you pour 12 ounces of anything on someone, it will make it down to his feet. Absolutely. Um, and this is preparation for his body, as he says. So I could not go on without saying some people apply perfume and cologne like this. It is not recommended. When I was in Miami, they used to call it the South Beach shower, and is not a good thing. Um, so I don't think there's any of you, but if you do, don't do it. Um, so when she does this, takes 12, 12 ounces of this expensive cologne, this perfume, what was their response? There were some who said to themselves indignantly, well, John tells us this is Judas, the greedy one, the thief, they listened to him. Uh, Matthew tells us that the disciples responded. So Judas speaks up. They follow his lead, and they say indignantly. We've covered this verse before in Mark, but it's helpful. It is, it is a word that describes a horse's snort. It is flaring nostrils. It is spitting and hissing, and it is nothing good. And they reply indignantly. Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Let me translate what they're saying. They're saying, we get it. Jesus is a big deal. But come on. That? That's a lot of money. Couldn't you have just given him a little and sold the rest? You know, we could have split that among all of us. You know, maybe we could go give it to the poor. Um, I know that you're this is a good idea, but isn't that a little bit over the top? That's what they're saying. And before we go any further, how often do we think that? Like, yeah, I'm devoted to Jesus, but that's a little bit too much. Or, man, that's a little overboard. Or how many of you have heard, as I have, like, I'm glad you're a Christian, but you don't have to be that Christian. Like, come on, you're going to give that to God? Don't you deserve more? Or how many also, like myself, have thought that about other people? Those radical givers that uh, impress and intimidate me. That you have no connection to your stuff, that they would literally give you the shirt off of their back. Give you the, 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 the food off of their, their plate. And she does it with something that is so expensive. But she does it. Not just for a good deed, not for someone else. She does it for Christ. How often are those people who give radically to Christ looked down on? And I have a very important question. Is there anything, any gift that is too great to give to Christ? Is there anything that is too great for the creator of the universe? For the savior of our souls? How often are we guilty of looking down on those who are zealous and radical givers. I want you to see how radical. Verse 5. For this anointment, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. 300 denarii. 
Denarii is one day's wages for a, a worker. This is your kind of average day laborer. A year's wages, 300 denarii, you know, including Sabbaths. And our money, 15 to 20 grand. A $15,000 bottle of perfume. Jesus is here. The rest of us, if we had a $15,000 bottle of anything, we'd be dishing that thing out in thimbles. But she takes it, breaks it. This is the greatest use for this. It will never be used again, and I'm going to give him all of it. Can you imagine? Most of us don't have something that is, that is worth 15 grand. And there is no job, there is no career in which a woman could earn that much money. This must have been a gift and a very prized possession in her family. And so this is another reason why they are just shocked. And by Judas's influence, they say the money could be given to the poor, the thief and the liar and the conspirer becomes the influencer of his brothers. So now I want us to examine ourselves for a moment as, as, as we look at this. This is a very common human trait, to critique someone else's service, to be the one who's sitting down, reclining, and saying, I know you're over there serving, but you shouldn't do that. You should do it this way, right? Every one of us is guilty of that. Every one of us We've, we, we've sat on the sidelines and we've watched someone else serve. We've seen what someone else has done and, and we've, we've critiqued them, either to their face or in our minds. Well, if I was there, I would have done that. I wouldn't have wasted that much. I would have, would have put the money over here. And what I've found in ministry is it is rarely the people who are serving joyfully who have complaints. It is almost always the people who are sitting on the sidelines who will not lift a finger, they're kicking back with, the, with, with their, their, their sweet tea watching you work and saying, you missed a spot. Uh, you should have went over there. If I was there, I would have I done this. I have seen this so many times. How often are we guilty of that? How often are we taking someone else's service to Christ and making it about us and criticizing them for what they did? We want to think about this there's a great view from the stands. If you go to watch a sporting event, you can see what everybody else is doing, and you can be the armchair quarterback all you want. You should have ran this play. You should have done this. You should have substituted here. You should have called the timeout here. But you have no stake in it. But when you're on the field and you're going to battle, serving alongside those who are working toward a common goal, they're is a benefit. There is a joy that you get to share in that you don't when you're in the stands. And as Christians, so many of us are content with sitting in the stands, are content with pointing out at everyone else who is working and serving and thinking we know how to better spend their money or spend their time. Yet do not get our hands dirty at all. This is a great lesson for us here. You know, we talked about this in our last men's study, the discipline of ministry. And Kent Hughes brings up some great examples and talks about all the hard things you can do. If you never run a marathon, 
You never get sore. You never have to train, but you never get the reward. And if you, Christian ministry is no different. If you do not serve, you will never get hurt. You will never ask to be do anything difficult. You will stay nice and safe and comfortable in your recliner. But is that faithful? Is that pleasing to God? What is more pleasing to God, reclining at the table or dropping at his feet and giving all of your value and wealth to him, saying, Jesus, you are worth more than my most prized possession. We'll get into that more in a minute. So here's Jesus' response. He says, why do you, he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here's a great picture into the mind of our Savior. He sees each one of his children. When they serve and do things in his name and someone else criticizes them, leave them alone. They've done it for me. He knows your gifts. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what you have to offer. He knows, like Ananias and Sapphira, if you are holding back from him. And he knows, like Mary, if you are just giving it freely to him. And the ones who scold scold her are now being scolded by him. What she's doing is a beautiful thing, but there's something unique about what she's doing. In the Greek, this is literally a precious work she has worked to me. This is precious. It is, it is a work. It is a good thing. And Mark is drawing another contrast here. Because what they call wasteful, Jesus calls beautiful. What they call wasteful, he calls precious. And how is that determined? Not by any kind of external criteria from man, but by her heart, by her devotion. Just like the woman with the two half a penny coins. And Jesus says there is, she gives greater than everyone else. So often in Jesus' ministry, women are used to shame self-righteous men. Consequently, it happens in our ministry as well. This is the type of person we want to be known as. The one who does the beautiful thing to Christ, but there's something particular about this. Now, before we get to her act specifically, I want to have a quick side note on verse 7. He says, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. So I want to just talk about this for a moment. Um, Poverty is a reality of the fall. The poor you will always have with you. When I hear people say we're going to end poverty, uh, just read Jesus. But I, I want to address this because typically we fall on one side of the, the line here and how we view poverty. So I want to look at how we view poverty wrongly. I'll do this quickly. And how Jesus handles it. So there are some, typically liberals, who put supporting the poor, the, the, the poor above honoring Christ. I've even heard some go as far as, how could Jesus put himself above the poor? Imagine saying that. Some thinking, if I just serve the poor... And never say a word about Jesus, then I'm patting myself on the back for doing a good thing. I'm not going to stop there. Many, typically conservatives, put themselves in, you know, I'm talking about Christians here, put commitment to doctrine and external practice so high 
And their heads are in the theological clouds that they never look down and see those who are struggling and see those who are hurting. Both of these are wrong. Both of these are not honoring to Christ, and neither one of these is what Christ did. Caring for the poor is a good thing, and, and Christ did. But what he reminds us here is it's not an ultimate thing. You can do good to them. You have the rest of your life to do that. But do not move your gaze from me. Notice two things he never did. He never took anyone out of poverty. We have no accounts of him giving anyone money. But he also never showed partiality. He gave them value by speaking to them as created in the image of God. He gave them value by forgiving their sins, by serving them. What is most important in all this is no matter how much money is in your bank account, whether you are, are poor or not, the greatest gift we can give to anyone is the good news of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, all the riches of this world will burn. But in Christ, you are rich beyond compare. You may have no money to your name, or you may leave behind all kinds of toys. But in Christ, you are never more rich than that. And so that is how we should view poverty. Should we have compassion? Absolutely. Should we make a good thing an ultimate thing? Absolutely not. Know what true riches are. But this is not the point of this verse. But you will not always have me. Jesus is saying, you can do good and do good in my name, but don't lose sight of me. I am your priority. And Jesus is telling them, you won't always have me. Very soon I will not be among you. He's looking toward his death. Here he is telling the disciples who are greedy and short-sighted, be more like Mary. Fix your eyes on me. And so I want us to think, can we say the same thing? Do we meditate more on our desire for Christ and desire to serve him or on our belongings? Do we place a higher value on things with a price tag or in our devotion to Christ? And then he continues, verse 8. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done what she could. This is a great compliment. Her complete selfless gift was commendable. She has done what she could. She has done the most beautiful thing that she could. She took her most valuable thing and she poured it out on me. Now we're going to get to the significance of it. The word anointed means to pour over with oil. And you see plenty of this in the Old Testament. This is a common practice, not just in, in, in uh, the biblical community, but in the ancient Near East. We've talked about this. Olive oil was used for many things. It was used for, for medication. It was uh, obviously used for seasoning food. But the idea of anointing, to pour oil over, it was for blessing. It was medicinal. It was for honored guests. Jesus, earlier in the gospel, says, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she washed my feet with her tears. It was for, and in biblical uh, sense, it was for divine blessing. It was, it was consecration for, for ministry, showing that God approves of you in this office. 
but it was also common for burial rites. And this was a common process that, that after death, someone would come and they would put oil and, and uh, spices on them. And so, like, if you just turn quickly to chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. This was the typical practice. After death, go to the, the, the body. They would ask someone to roll the, the, the stone away, and they would, they would um, in, in show of care and concern, anoint his, his body. But she does this beforehand. And we should ask, does she understand Mary, did you know? We don't know. Did she really understand what was going on here? We don't know. But here's what we do know. Jesus knew his death was certain. Jesus knew that it was coming up. He knew he had to come to this hour. He knew that in his death was the seal of his sacrifice. There is finality in his death. That he would go to the cross and then to the grave. And when he died, sin would die with him. And death would die with him. And the wrath of God would be poured out on him. And that grave sealed it. And the, the, the cross is the finish line to his earthly ministry. And her act has more significance than anyone realizes, and I think even her. This was such a costly anointing. It is to show us that his death is so valuable that the most, most expensive thing you could think of is the only thing that is appropriate to anoint it. It is showing the value of his death, and God blesses it, and God approves of it. It is a prophetic event that says this death is so valuable I want to give you a small piece. I will give my entire year's wages to show you how valuable this is. And again, this is another thing pointing forward. So Jesus commends her already. She does a beautiful thing. This anointing is all that she could do. And then he actually brings it up. There, in each of these verses, 7, 8, and 9, there is a compliment and nine is an immense compliment. Verse nine, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Think about that. Jesus wants what she did just now, which seems ridiculous in their eyes, to be remembered in the whole world throughout all time. Wherever the gospel is preached. Notice a couple things here. There is, there is an unbreakable connection, inseparable connection between gospel and preaching. The proclamation of the word of God is, uh, is inseparable from the gospel. And it is inseparable from mention of his death. His death is so closely related to the gospel that what she did will be attached to the gospel forever. There is, it is not preaching if you do not talk about the costly sacrifice of Christ. It is not the gospel if, 
the, the, the death of Christ and what it costs him and what, it, what its value is to us is not proclaimed. And this woman um, shows it and identifies it so clearly that Jesus wants it to be remembered. It's fascinating and amazing and humbling. Just like his death must be proclaimed for it to be the gospel, so must his resurrection. And just like she puts ointment on a man who is alive, normally you would only anoint a dead body. She anoints a living body because he is a living God. He is not dead. He is alive, and that is to be remembered. This is a man who will die, who will be buried, but he lives. And it is worth all your possessions. And so what I love about this, it is Mary, the devoted disciple, the selfless, generous giver, unashamed to be shown undignified for Jesus' sake. She is the one to be remembered and imitated. She is the one to be the gospel example. Her deed will be proclaimed until Jesus returns. In Revelation, we get a picture of the prayers of the saints being a sweet aroma, perfume that reaches up to the throne of God. Every time the gospel is preached, this small token of her devotion is a fragrance throughout the whole world. It is so beautiful, this smell of devotion and obedience and submission to him. Her generous act is closely related to the gospel. So for us, how does our devotion look? What will we be remembered for? How will Christ view, most importantly, how will he view our acts to him? How will he speak about us before the Father? What will we hear when we go to see him? Will we be the ones known for sitting at the table and criticizing and pointing fingers? Or will we be the ones who offer beautiful fragrances to the head and feet of our Savior? So we've got one last little section. I'm going to handle this quickly because we'll deal with it next week as well. But 10 and 11, this is the Mark and Sandwich. Here's the other piece of bread. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I'm thankful for Josh because he made this, this, this connection. But Judas's pledge, he, he sought them out. He went to them and then they promised to fulfill it with 30 pieces of silver. You know what 30 pieces of silver is worth? 30 Roman shekels. 30 Roman shekels. One shekel is four denarii. 30 of them is 120. She spends 300 denarii anointing Jesus. He betrays Jesus for 120. What was the value of Christ to this woman versus Judas? This is what Mark is drawing our attention to. This is how high she holds Jesus. This is how cheaply he got off. What an amazing contrast of her price versus Judas's. This is a relevant detail for us because let's be honest, we all have a price. 
every one of us has a figure in mind of what we will do a job for, what wage we will, we, we will get paid. Some of you, like me, one of your favorite games when you were a kid was, uh, how much could I pay you to drink a bottle of hot sauce? Anybody ever do this? For, for 10 bucks, would you lick a bathroom wall? For 100? So I, maybe just me and my twisted friends, but we used to fantasize about this. Like for 10 grand, I would, for a million, I would. Can we be bought? Are we, as adults, do we still have a price? And which is the price? Is it the price of what we're willing to give or is it the price of what we want for ourselves? What is our limit? Can you be bought? Are we like Judas monetizing everything? Or are we like Mary? We hold things so loosely that they could be taken and given any time and God is glorified. So, two quick points of application. Number one, notice here that God shows his power in the one thing that is completely out of our control and inevitable, death. Ever since Adam, death is over humanity. And every one of us deserves it. If the Lord does not come back, every one of us will see that first death. And God uses death for his glory. God uses death to show how sovereign he is to control all the events of human history and bring them to the culmination of the glory of his son. And the most costly death of all is that of Jesus. And if Jesus himself without sin, without blemish, the spotless lamb gave his life for you, how much is your life worth? Makes the $15,000 bottle of perfume seem like pennies. Christ freely died for you. Die to yourself and live to him. Because in him you are rich. And so our second point of application, like Mary's act, the things that remain forever are the things that are done for Christ. The things that are, that are done in his name with him in our sights. Jesus, I want you to be glorified by this. This I do to you in Jesus' name. This I do for the glory of my Savior. And when he returns, he will reward them. He will exalt you. And as we saw in Zephaniah, he will rejoice over you because you are his. And so we should rejoice over him now. And may we be known as those type of givers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what can we say to the gospel? How could we possibly fathom your love for us? That you would send your son. That he would die. 
truly man. He would die for us. And if we're honest, we are so much more like Judas than we are like Mary. We are greedy and conniving and selfish. And if it was apart from your grace, we would, we would sell you for 10 pieces of silver. But you sent your son to die for us. It, his death put to death our death. And not the first one, which we will experience, but the second one. The one that is separation from the mercy of God forever. That is the full power of his wrath upon sin. Given for us. Lord, forgive us when we take this for granted. Forgive us when we think too lightly about the gospel. Forgive us when we think too much about our stuff and ourselves. Help us to be more like Mary. We freely give and see how great your sacrifice is for us. That we may be called good and faithful and beautiful in your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.